you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com Goals24. That's Chime.com Goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca's Your Cancer program, which involves interdisciplinary community stakeholders to help redefine cancer care for all patients. Learn more at yourcancer.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Yasmina Boutalib, a health policy reporter here at The Post. Today is part of our Chancing, Chasing Cancer series. My first guest is Dr. Carol Brown, Chief Health Equity Officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Also with us is Dr. Karen Winkfield, Executive Director of the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance and a member of President Biden's National Cancer Advisory Board. And a disclosure, she's consulted with AstraZeneca, the sponsor of this program in the last year. Dr. Wingfield, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, glad to be here. So uh, Dr. Brown, I'm going to start with you. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, African-Americans still have the highest mortality rate of any racial or ethnic group for most major cancers. What are some of the reasons for that? Well, some of the reasons that uh, people of color, particularly Black uh, Americans, have higher uh, death rates and higher incidence rates from some of the common cancers, a lot of it has to do with, uh, I think one of the things we're talking about today are the social determinants of health. Where Black people live, where they're born, their socioeconomic status, uh, all these things can affect it. And so the common cancers, most common ones, breast, lung, colon, and prostate, Unfortunately, for all of those cancers, Black people have higher death rates uh, and for some of them higher incidence rates. We think a lot of it has to do with um, lack of screening, access to screening, diagnosis, and most importantly, I think, access to the type of high-quality, comprehensive uh, care for cancer and clinical trials that Dr. Wingfield and I both uh, do in our practice and are really advocating for to make sure that all people have access to these types of services. Dr. Wingfield, before COVID, black and white cancer disparities were narrowing amid progress against common malignancies. What impact do you think the pandemic has had on that progress? Has there been any backslide in that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we know that there was a lot of fear um, around getting screenings done during the COVID pandemic. In fact, access was restricted. We know that as well. Um, some of the screening facilities, if you think about mammography, radiological suites that were there to help provide screening, some of them were even closed during the initial part of COVID. So there are estimates that for some cancers that we can screen for, we can screen for about six different cancers, that their estimates about 80% reduction in terms of the screening rates. And we know that that disproportionately impacts communities of color and also those in rural areas. And so we absolutely are worried about the fact that there may be some issues related to a later stage of diagnosis. We are certainly seeing that in our clinics, but more importantly, we are concerned that that may impact 
and further um, exacerbate some of the disparities that, as you've noted, uh, were actually coming down, particularly related to Black-White. There was a report by the AACR that came out in 2020 in September that actually showed that there was a nice uh, decline in terms of the gap, that gap still exists. But now with the pandemic, we are certainly concerned that the issues related to access to screening will exacerbate some of the, the mortality and morbidity related to cancer uh, for the disenfranchised communities. Dr. Brown, we yeah, know that prevention is the key to combating many cancers. Apart from routine screening, managing things like diet and exercise, cutting or reducing smoking, are there other measures that people can take to minimize their cancer risk? So I think actually the most important thing um, that people can do, particularly in communities of color to minimize their cancer risk is really be aware of some of the symptoms and signs and be aware of the screenings that are needed. Uh, I think lifestyle changes are important, but I actually think um, particularly for the disenfranchised and for communities of color, um, I really don't like to put the onus on the patient. Unfortunately, all the cancers that I mentioned, including one that I deal with particularly as a GYN uh, cancer specialist, uterine cancer. It, there's only so much you can do in terms of your lifestyle to prevent them. The facts are that these cancers are out there and you really have to be aware what the symptoms are, what the signs are, and really advocate for yourself when you have these symptoms and signs to see your healthcare provider, to make sure that you're getting your screenings, your mammograms, your pap smears, your colonoscopies, um, and now lung cancer screening. Um, but the most important thing I think is knowing, um, you know, that living a healthy lifestyle is really important, but for some of the most deadly cancers, um, it's really not enough. And it's about getting your screening and knowing the symptoms. Well, education is obviously a, a hugely critical part of this. So you know what to look for, but I'm curious for either one of you, what role do you think fear plays in people skipping screenings or not going, you know, even if they suspect they might have some symptoms. And of course, some of the symptoms can be so innocuous sometimes. And I tell you, you know, we're all tired and we're all feeling that. But let me just back up to one of the things, you know, Dr. Brown, was, and I'm so like glad you mentioned, we've got to stop putting the onus on communities. We know that there are so many structural barriers that are related to access to care that are related to access to even foods. If we think about food insecurity in this country, we have over 40% of United States of Americans who, who are, are food insecure in this country. And we know that nutrition matters. Nutrition is an important component of prevention. It's an important component of, of uh, weight management, if you will. Um, they have all these newfangled terms, but we know obesity is a huge epidemic, but a lot of that's because people are living in food deserts and are forced to eat foods that are, that are processed, et cetera, that actually increase their risk. So let's make sure that we are thinking about the social determinants of health. Let's make sure that we are talking about the structural barriers that have been created that have been created, redlining um, in, in communities where they've essentially created segregated communities that are based on wealth and income, where we need to strategize as a, as a community, as a, as a country, on how do we change the dynamics so that people can 
if they are educated, actually have access to the resources. And I think that's a huge component. So I just wanted to, to back Dr. Brown up um, with respect to that statement, because we've really got to, to change that focus and that lens and stop saying, what is it that people can do? Which it's true, they do need to be educated. We do need to be self-aware, but we also need to understand from a policy perspective that there are things that need to change in this country to remove those structural barriers. Yes, and I think and the issue on that. I'm sorry. I was going to say add on How to that. How do you ideas for bridging gap with community engagement, um, especially when it comes to medically underserved communities and communities of color? Dr. Brown, did you want to take that? Oh, I think I was going to say that um, you you mentioned fear, but I think Dr. Wingfield and I would also say that it actually has a lot. Some of those fears are very well founded, and it's actually about trust and trust of the healthcare system and the system in general. I think for black people, that is really the issue. And she and I both know this, you know, it's fear of being experimented on. It's fear of not getting the same kind of attention and quality of care. So that is really the type of work that she and I do. We're really trying to make um, people of color and everyone aware that in terms of cancer and in terms of cancer science, we acknowledge these structural barriers we and we want people to know that there are people like Dr. Wingfield, like Dr. My, like myself, who are really in the system and working to to make sure that people are aware that we understand that fear, but don't let that fear and that mistrust keep you from getting the right care. And in fact, we're, we're working very hard with communities of color to let them know that there are legions of scientists, physicians, uh, PhDs, nurses who are specifically working to get rid of these disparities that affect uh, people of color in this country. And that, uh, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of participating in clinical trials. You just have to get the information because clinical trial participation is one of the best ways to get great care for your cancer. Um, and it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, there are people like Dr. Wingfield and like Dr. and like myself who are out there who you can get your care from, um, that yep. you can have that kind of trust. And I think that is a really um, important thing that uh, we're doing and that we hope is really going to change um, that fear slash mistrust of the healthcare system, which we saw so much with COVID. Um, yes. And we're really working to change that. Yeah. So that was the point I was well, going to make. Well, it's a you know? perfect I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> I was going to say you had talked about engagement and I wanted to just bring up. So I'm working with the, the National Institutes of Health, their community engaged alliance against COVID-19 disparities. And I help to co-lead their inclusive participation work group. And I tell you, this is the, the thing that we're hearing over and over again, this theme of mistrust. It's not new, but it's something that we have got to focus on and really work on. So you asked about engagement and certainly we are doing boots on the ground engagement with individuals, with families, with communities, and that's important. But we also have to engage institutions and providers uh, to make sure that we are doing our best to help to alleviate some of those fears. There's no point in me going out and doing community engagement and saying to uh, individuals who are from communities of colors, hey, why don't you come in and join this clinical trial? We're going to take good care of you if that's not true. Right. So I have to be trustworthy. And that means that I have to rely on the institutions that I'm working with to say, hey, we recognize that there have been historical barriers that we have placed that we are now working wholly and, and fully full on to really change those so that we can indeed continue to build trust in the communities that have been disenfranchised. 
And I want to talk a little bit about both of your personal experiences with your own patients, um, because we I think we need to turn some of the conversation to COVID. Uh, we had the National Cancer Institute director, Ned Sharpless, on this program back in June, and he said that there's been a 95% decrease in the cancer screenings across the board since the pandemic began, which was worse than what NCI had predicted. Um, so what has been the impact on your patients and the way that you've had to administer care? Well, I will take that one. I think that, you know, a lot of it is we, we fortunately have been able, I think, to minimize the impact on patients who actually have active cancer in terms of their treatment. Because um, even in New York, we were fortunate that many hospitals banded together so that uh, we really prioritized patients who were in active treatment and had, you know, urgently needed surgeries that were able to get it. But I think the, the most important impact is what you mentioned and what Dr. Sharpless mentioned is that people not coming in, not just for their screenings, but when they have these symptoms, they put off coming in. And so we're really engaged now um, at, at Memorial Sloan Kettering and, and most of the cancer hospitals um, in New York, as well as I think around the country, in trying to reach out to people and remind them that it is, it is safe to come in and uh, to really get that message out there. Um, we've actually been fortunate to partner with uh, the Nassau County Community Health, uh, uh, Health Department in Long Island. We partnered with them during COVID uh, when the vaccine first became available to um, vaccinate underserved community members, including many community members of color at our cancer care facility on Long Island. And in doing so, we established a bond and a trust. And what we're now doing is we're reaching out to those same individuals and personally inviting them to come for prostate, breast, lung, and colorectal cancer screening at our facility, letting them know that you, you probably put this off during COVID. Well, you got vaccinated here, so come on in and we'll, we'll work with you to get your cancer screening done. And, and importantly, if we find a cancer, you can trust that we're gonna follow through. We're gonna make sure that you get the right treatment. So I think it's those kind of, of direct institutional um, in community engagement that Dr. Wingfield was mentioning that are really um, going to try to make the difference and make up that gap in people uh, having not come in during the pandemic. Yeah, and can I just say one of the things that I think is really important is utilizing the entire care team. And that includes navigators, patient navigators, whether they be lay navigators. We know that Harold Freeman, when he started the program, it was with lay navigation with individuals who are from and of the communities that we're trying to serve, that he was able to take an overall survival rate of 30% for breast cancer in black women to over 70% in that community, just by engaging and allowing for individuals who are from and of the communities to do part of that engagement work. So that's one of the strategies is really to utilize navigational services to help people, um, to really help to allay any fears, but to help them to navigate. Because frankly, one of the challenges in our country is that healthcare, unfortunately, is often times tied to employment. So many people we know lost their jobs during COVID-19 pandemic. There have been other challenges with respect to logistics that have impeded their ability to have access, to gain access to, to screening. And so those navigators, if they're intercalated into the system, can really help to reduce some of the, the burden on the patient and to allow them to have the logistical and emotional support to actually follow through with screening. And you've both touched on this, but I want to ask a little bit about telehealth, which was one way to help broaden access to healthcare during the pandemic, um, particularly for people in rural communities. 
Do you think that the COVID pandemic has shown us, well, what gaps has the COVID pandemic shown us in our healthcare system? And do those same gaps exist in cancer care? And I know you've both addressed some of this um, throughout our conversation, but I also want to talk about solutions and what has been exposed and how we can begin to address it. Well, I can tell you, telehealth certainly has allowed for expansion of healthcare services into in, in, in areas where there may have been some deficits, has allowed people to continue working in a very different way, right? You think about a rural population where they may need to drive 200 miles to come into a center and now having the ability to connect with their provider um, on a, uh, in a in a web-based format or even by telephone certainly is beneficial. It helps to reduce some of the financial toxicities. But I want to make it clear, one of the things that the COVID pandemic has shown is that there are still gaps in terms of infrastructure. So the digital divide is real. There are areas in our communities with that we don't have broadband access, that they might not have telephone service. And those are things that really help to, um, that we need to address and help to address so that we can make sure that that telehealth is broadly accessible. The other thing is a policy concern, because I tell you, with the pandemic, people may have had to move. They may be moving out of state, but still want to be connected with their, with their teams, with their care teams. But there's this barrier with respect to insurance coverage where there's, they're not allowed to cross state lines. And, and these kind of, um, kind of made up barriers really do restrict the capacity of individuals to access healthcare in the way that's best for them. And it's something that really does need to be addressed from a, from a policy standpoint. We still have work to do with respect to improving technologies, but really it's the policy piece that also needs to be looked at. And Dr. Wingfield, you're on uh, President Biden's National Cancer Advisory Committee. We know that he has said he's hugely committed to ending cancer as we know it, that he has a huge commitment to this because of his personal experience. So what do you think the Biden presidency means for the future of cancer care, especially as we still have so many resources deployed to fighting the pandemic? Well, you know, I, so my appointment was to the National Cancer Advisory Board, which actually helps to advise the, the National Cancer Institutes. So working with Dr. Ned Sharpless to kind of identify what are the research priorities, what are some of the other priorities that we can have as, an, as a country that are really going to be focused on alleviating uh, the cancer disparities. And I must say, I'm very pleased that we're, I'm able to join the National Cancer Advisory Board during this administration. President Biden has a personal history with cancer. Um, and so I think that having someone who understands the burdens that cancer can have on families, even families that may have abilities, that may have logistical support, that may have financial means to get care, um, how do we then translate that um, to individuals who might not? So I can't speak on behalf of the administration, but I can certainly tell you that there's a lot that we need to do from a research perspective. We have uh, over 40 different comprehensive cancer centers in this nation. And we need to start driving those comprehensive cancer centers in a different way to say, what are we doing? What are the metrics? How are we showing that the work that we're doing, that our tax dollars are going to to provide support for patients? Is it moving the needle? Are we actually making progress to help alleviate these gaps? And especially the new ones, as we see. Technology is driving cancer care, even in terms of precision oncology. How are we making sure that every patient has the same opportunity to survive cancer and to survive it well? And Dr. Brown, we have about a minute left. So I wanna ask you, what solutions or proposals do you think would make the biggest difference in making cancer care more equitable? 
I think one of the biggest uh, impacts can be uh, had through partnerships uh, between NCI designated comprehensive cancer centers and the actual 70% uh, of providers who are delivering cancer care in the community. Most patients for geographic and other reasons can't get their care at a comprehensive cancer center. So it takes partnership between the kind of uh, centers that I work at and Dr. Wingfield worked at with uh, community providers. And we have these uh, type of partnerships even in areas regarding precision medicine. And I think that's really important. Telemedicine is great, but you can't get your cancer uh, surgery or your cancer radiation uh, treatment through telemedicine. You have to uh, actually have that physical contact and with the patient. So I think partnering with the community providers and with the communities to make sure um, that they're getting that type of care is really important. And I think both of us have examples of successful ways, and we hope to translate that uh, so that all the comprehensive cancer centers and, and uh, cancer uh, academic centers can have these types of uh, uh, collaborations and really make an impact. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Carol Brown, Dr. Karen Wingfield, thank you both so much for joining us today. It was a fascinating and really important discussion. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be back in just a few minutes with oncologist and TikTok content creator, Dr. Sanjay Juneja. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good afternoon. My name is Cassandra Coach Johnson, and I'm the Associate Deputy Director for the Delaware Division of Public Health. I'm also a member of the AstraZeneca U.S. Health Equity Advisory Council, which includes national leaders from the public and private sector to guide the evolution of AstraZeneca's health equity strategy. Today, I'm pleased to be here on behalf of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program, which spotlights, convenes, and empowers difference makers working to create meaningful changes to advance ca cancer practice and care. Our discussion today will focus on highlighting cancer disparities while emphasizing some of the most urgent needs and concerns of people from underserved communities who have or who are at risk for breast cancer. To date, COVID-19 has caused an excess of 100,000 cancer-related deaths due to delays in screenings. Regrettably, many racial and ethnic minorities, people living in remote areas, and those without health insurance face a disproportionate burden for cancer and worsen outcomes. Although COVID-19 has impacted most facets of cancer care, people affected by breast cancer have been acutely affected. Black women of note continue to experience the worst of these disparities. According to the American Cancer Society, 40% of Black women are more likely to die of breast cancer and are twice as likely to die if they are over 50 than those who otherwise have access to routine preventive and quality care. Our goal today is to raise awareness of health disparities to breast for, in breast cancer at every level and inspire meaningful change to redefine the future of cancer care. I'm pleased to be joined today by Margaret Osias from the Delaware Breast Cancer Coalition, an organization that has been working to support breast cancer survivors, their families, and the community for over 30 years. Hello, Margaret. Hello, Cassandra. Thank you so much for joining me for this important conversation. Uh, let's dive right in. So what has the pandemic taught us about the importance of health equity and cancer screening and ways that we can broaden that access to underserved minority communities and those living far away from cancer screening sites? All right, 
So the pandemic has taught us the importance of breaking down barriers for all communities, especially the underserved minority communities, to ensure that everyone has equitable access to care. The focus of the women's health screening operated by the Delaware Breast Cancer Coalition is to provide that centralized patient navigation services for all of our clients, such as providing access to primary care providers, assistance with obtaining health coverage, language interpretation, assistance with follow-up appointments, and also transportation to and from the cancer screening sites. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. And I'll also be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Delaware's infrastructure with our Delaware Screening for Life program. Um, so for those who are seeking access to screening across the state of Delaware, our Screening for Life program can help you gain access. So in addition to its impact on screening, the pandemic also disrupted overall continuity of care for people being treated for breast cancer. Are there any silver linings we can point to about how to ensure underserved communities are aware of and have access to the latest uh, targeted therapies used to treat breast cancer? Um, yes, there definitely are. I think the largest silver lining would be the highlight on the impact on disparate populations, which has strengthened and has opened up new conversations and focusing on providing health equity to underserved communities. We are broadening access to care by working with employers and churches who work closely with large numbers of the underserved communities by offering education in person and virtually assisting those individuals with scheduling their appointment helping with financial um, assistance and any other services that are required. So with partnerships with AstraZeneca, DBCC is able to actually pilot a breast health outreach program called the Championess Project, which means champions in Haitian Creole. And this program will be launched to train Haitian women to become health advocates within their communities and to also encourage other women to become more comfortable with getting their mammograms because early detection is key. So in general, the world has become more open to telemedicine. So the continuation of virtual care appointments with oncologists to provide access to care has made a significant difference, especially when it comes to the latest targeted therapies used for breast cancer. Thank you so much for sharing those important comments and highlighting those important programs that are available across the state. I'm also really hopeful about some of the translational research um, that we see happening both nationally and right here in Delaware. There's some really um, exciting translational research happening at Christiana Care with Dr. Siegel and his team in relationship to triple negative breast cancer. Um, I think all of that research um, coupled with the programs that you shared will really be um, helpful to advancing cancer care um, as the years progress. So finally, how can we better come together across the oncology community to better support all patients living with and affected by breast cancer and ensure they have the access to the latest screening and treatments that they need? Right, that's a great question. So to support these efforts, we recognize the need for offering more flexible screening times for working individuals to attend their screenings and their cancer treatment. So therefore, offering appointments outside the typical nine to five office hours have been very successful in expanding these efforts with our community partners to offer these services to the local communities beyond the doors of the medical facility. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for spending a little time 
um, with me today, uh, Margaret, to have this really important uh, conversation. Um, and as we reflect on the impact that COVID-19 has had on the breast cancer community, um, we continue to dedicate ourselves to reimagining the future of cancer care. I'm inspired by the great strides that we have already made and all the work that we have yet to do. To help raise awareness of these issues um, through education, research, and, and the inspiring stories, we encourage you to learn more about AstraZeneca's commitment to catalyzing change alongside the oncology community at yourcancer.org. Thank you to the Washington Post for hosting this timely forum, and thank you to Margaret Osias for and the develop and the Delaware Breast Cancer Coalition for our enlightening discussion and the incredible work you do to improve the quality of life for people with breast cancer. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm Yasmina Butalib. Joining us now is Dr. Sanjay Juneja, an oncologist. Dr. Juneja, welcome to Washington Post Live. Oh, thanks so much for having me, and I'm honored to be here and, and to listen to those extraordinary physicians uh, just now on, on everything they're doing in healthcare and, and equity. It's, it's a real privilege, and I'm, and I'm honored. Well, we're really excited to have you. Um, I want to start by talking about um, health equity in the second half of this interview. But first, I want to talk a little bit about social media and how you use it. Um, you use it for medical education. You're an oncologist who has built up a huge following on TikTok and on Instagram. What got you interested in making medical information more accessible to the public? Yeah, so I think, you know, the most exciting thing and the main reason uh, that I just love being a part of today in medicine is that people really want to know more and be informed and and educated about their health and and their diagnoses. And that's really exciting. So, you know, I remember when I first started practice, sometimes when I'm going through, you know, a, a blood count and explaining why that elevated white count is probably not cancer. And I would say, if it was leukemia, it's this. And and if you if it was something scary, you would see this. It was an older couple and they were, you know, in their 80s and, and they kind of called the next day and were like, are, you know, to do I have leukemia or not? And so uh, I think that age has kind of changed where in the past it was more of this kind of, this is what you have, this is what you do, and and people were comfortable with that. But now people really want to be informed and have like a kind of collaborative approach to their health, uh, take ownership of their, you know, diagnoses, whatever they may be, cancer or not. And and it's it's an exciting thing to be a part of. The the unfortunate flip side of that is where when healthcare is evolving so quickly and obviously, you know, far from being optimized, patients are actually receiving less time with their um, physicians and, and those opportunities to learn about these things so that they can take ownership and, and be, you know, oftentimes more proactive as a consequence. And so there's there's that there's that increased desire, but a decreased opportunity. And that's where social media uh, has been a really exciting place, almost by serendipity, given obviously the quarantine and people having more time, um, because I found pretty early on in in you know making social media content, people want to know about these things. They're very interested, and it's not just the medical community. They want to know about about cancer and what their you know kind of blood counts mean, and and what is anemia, and and it's exciting 
because people are so eager to learn and it's also a really great tool because it gives you kind of recyclable uh, opportunity to share the knowledge that you may be sharing, you know, to 20 patients in a day within a 50 mile radius versus to, you know, 2 million people in 60 seconds. So the reach uh, that you have to be able to deliver this education and what I do on kind of a daily basis is so much more broad to give, play, you know, people maybe in communities or places where they don't have quite as much of an opportunity to be able to get the information they seek just because there's a deficit of, of, of oncologists or physicians. It gives them an opportunity to educate them and then make them feel more confident about either their management and also just, you know, about the process and what to do about it. I want to take a look at one of your most popular TikToks. You, you have a combination of videos. You've got some like the one we'll show where you kind of build on trends and dancing and giving people information through the text that way and others where you're talking directly to people. But I just want to give our audience a sense of some of the content you've got there. Oh gosh. So that video has over 2 million views on TikTok. Do you think social media platforms like TikTok are changing how people think about their health or maybe making elements of it more accessible? For sure. I mean, I think, you know, the word I always use is empowerment and with knowledge is empowerment. Um, again, you know, I don't think anyone would argue that that healthcare as rapidly as it's evolving is completely optimized, right? So they're deficits uh, both in labor and time um, and diagnostics that are happening everywhere. And it ultimately is just, you know, unfair and unfortunate for patients. They, they may suffer with, with an unknown diagnosis or something that can considerably change the quality of their life uh, and just happen to be in a place where that's, even though we know it in 2021 and it's available, but it's not delivered. And that's that's a tragedy. We, we, we spend so many billions of dollars on diagnostics and education, the loan debt for medical education and the therapeutics, we spend all this money, but what a misfortune if you have all of these things to be able to improve the quality of somebody's life and then it's just not applied because you're, because, you know, one individual may be unaware or, 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 you know, undiagnosed. And so I think the reason that that video got a lot of, um, of views and, and something that I'm, you know, humbled by is, I had a message uh, several weeks ago that said, you know, I was on three medications, centrally acting medications that kind of, you know, make you a little more sedated for my restless legs. And I saw your video and I asked about it uh, and we checked. And sure enough, even though I wasn't very anemic or low on my blood, I was markedly iron deficient. So I was right on the borderline. Got repleted with, uh, with some IV iron and all the medications are off. They were actually on disability and the medications were off and now they're back at work and they actually had a lot of joy in, in work and what they did. So, you know, having those messages really kind of encourage me and, and um, I know others to be able to just distribute and diffuse the kind of knowledge and education we have to be able to, to make people uh, feel empowered, but also more proactive about their own health. Um, until and if there's a day where healthcare is like totally optimized, it it just requires a more collaborative approach uh, than before. Where before you would have a doctor that really really knew you well and kind of was always your quarterback for everything. But we know that that's kind of changed in in some subsets of of America and and it's more 
you know, focal, like I go to this person for this and this person for this. And in that circumstance, it's hard for that person or individual or physician to appreciate your baseline and, and all of those things. So with social media, it's just really neat to see people learn things that they maybe didn't even know that they wanted to know. You know, I've several people in the kind of social media doctor circle that talk about like how common it is not to be able to have children, you know, and infertility and, and, and some of the measures you take and, and all kinds of things that maybe people have some emotional struggle with or thought it was just them, the degree of fatigue or, or what, whatever it is, are now getting like knowledge and education to be able to seek out more if it was unanswered. And even, even if it doesn't change the kind of diagnosis or therapy that's provided, it also gives peace of mind. And that's pretty invaluable, especially when it comes to cancer, because you know, I see it all the time. Patients, you know, if two patients present the same way and one may have, unfortunately, they're stage four and one has 18 months and, but doesn't really understand, you know, or know what to expect, what their cancer means, um, um, the timeline on things, they can have a significantly different year and a half of life than somebody that may have had 12 months, but just knows and understands everything and is, is traveling and, and appreciating everything in life and not in this kind of darkness. Um, it's kind of corny, but but I think about education like like being in a room or say in the waters, but you're blindfolded. I've learned very quickly in oncology that people, all kinds of people, any kind of person has tremendous strength and courage in them, like stuff that I hope that I could even be a tenth of if I were faced in the kind of situations they're faced in. But you see that strength and you remove that blindfold when you educate, like when you have that knowledge and when you know the waters you're in and you can see the room and it's not darkness, human beings have this inherent amazing ability to be able to like just will the strength to be able to, to have productive and fulfilling lives. But when things are unknown, that's when things are really unfortunate. And especially if things are unknown as well as suboptimal like as in like there's things that exist out there in cancer with therapeutics and you know y'all talked about precision medicine uh on your last event like there are things that people are just not aware of and tools that are very valuable that are left on the table and then with this kind of social media education we could say hey if you have lung cancer and you're a non-smoker you have a pretty good chance you know or higher chance of that you have a mutation in your cancer that can be attacked with this oral pill and guess what one was approved six weeks ago that was that I learned in fellowship was not actionable. There's no treatment for this KRAS mutation. And suddenly a month ago, it's actionable and it's an oral pill and it's not standard chemotherapy. Well, do we think every single family and person that has lung cancer and doesn't smoke knows this, that when it came out six weeks ago, does every oncologist know if they're, if they're you know, overwhelmed trying to meet the needs of the community? We know there's a huge oncologist deficit in a lot of the you know, non-major city, non-major academic center uh, places? Poss probably not. I mean, certainly not to say it was 100%. And then you have social media where people are on TikTok and Instagram, and then they can learn about this. So we need to democratize the education that we spent a long time doing and empower people so that they have that information. I want to take a look at one other uh, TikTok of yours, which is specifically cancer-related, and it's, this one's about screening. So let's watch. What's poppin'? Don't mind me, just watch it. So 
the pandemic led to a, a huge decrease in cancer screenings, which could lead to increased death and disease. I know that's been a big fear of a lot of oncologists and experts. What impact did you see the pandemic have on your patients? And have you seen people coming in with more advanced cases because of delayed screenings? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a diagnosis of cancer, I would assume for any oncologist or any healthcare provider, is it, 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 it's just sad. It, you, you really hurt for the patients and their families because you know kind of the emotional challenges and just, you know, time and energy and, and the psychology of it all when you get a diagnosis. Um, it, it, it's hard not to ignore that things that maybe were on the cusp of curative now may not have been because a biopsy, you know, an elective, if it was considered an elective biopsy led to a delayed diagnosis or the screening. Well, I, you know, I've had several patients that have come in. I didn't get my mammogram last year or my colonoscopy and they were a little higher risk or they had another, you know, six month screening imaging due and were unable. And sure enough, it's cancer. That number one presents, you know, a big challenge in and of itself because things are more advanced now. But the thing that really, really just hurts is that I can't pretend like I'm on the other side with the patient and their family members, even though I'm in the same room. But I can't imagine all of the what ifs and should we haves that come with even standard treatment uh, management outside of forget, you know, COVID and, and the obstacles on there. Things aren't always crystal clear. You have to decide if you're going to do what's called adjuvant chemotherapy, meaning are we going to give chemo, even though we think we got it all, to reduce your chance of it coming back because statistically it shows you have a better chance of remission. So you do things like that and radiation, and even if it would have come back with or without chemo, you start thinking, should I have or shouldn't I have? Now we've introduced this whole new variable for something that's already so challenging emotionally for patients and their family members, and that's if COVID wasn't happening could I still have my mom, you know, my wife, my husband, my kids? And I hate that that's something that has to linger forever. Like that that's the forever effect of COVID, not just in sickness or in ICU admissions and, and death from COVID, but even the psychology of saying there, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that, that may have to ask that question when the reality is it may not have made a difference. But that kind of, you know, coping and, and, and the psychology and emotional component of something so scary as cancer, to, to have that added on, that, that's really been difficult for me personally, um, because I've seen it, obviously, where, you know, where that question is asked. And you don't know, again, if it made a difference, but, the, but emotional health really ultimately is, is the most important thing about anything in life, right? The time is one thing, but, it, but you want to enjoy it and have that emotion and, and people have to have that insult. And that's been really... I, that's been the hardest part. I want to talk a little bit about equity, especially because you practice in Louisiana, which was hit really hard by COVID-19 in a couple different waves. How have you seen disparities play out in your region when it comes to both COVID Yeah, so, you know, disparities is a big topic in, in, in cancer and healthcare as a whole and and in cancer as well i guess cancer is by no means spared and um you know one of the best things i've heard is you know people will say sometimes like oh you know african american community or certain demographics you know have mistrust or they don't trust you know medicine and and i think that's an unfair statement and people say it's an unfair statement because instead the statement should be we haven't earned the trust 
and and it's it's warranted and doesn't put the blame on on that demographic but really puts the blame on what we have a lot of literature support and evidence on showing that there's a clear statistical disparity in care and management for cancer you know with the higher death rates uh, that occur especially in like prostate cancer with african american men and there's there's so many statistics that even through social media i've like really learned and been disillusioned to so um those challenges are no less present here. And I think the the most important thing is is that that tool of of education. That's how we combat these kind of like disparities um, until the system does right, uh, you know, by everyone as, as as humanity. We need to have those tools of education, like that CT lung uh, lung cancer screening. I mean, can you can you believe that for a second? With as much as we know, colonoscopies and mammograms um, are a part of screening. 95%, up to 95% that qualify for a paid lung cancer screening don't even have it ordered by their providers. And that's where, like, that's where you're trying to basically bridge that gap on the disparity. Because obviously there's, and literature shows this, that there's a, you know, a certain kind of bias towards a lung cancer that's you know, thought of as solely a smoker's cancer, which is totally not true, but almost has this like slant, like why it's one of the most common cancers in men and women equally, but it's five, but you're telling me it's 5% when there's a screening modality that's approved. And so we need to get over these biases. And the only way, the only way to do that is to talk about it. And so on those social media platforms, I've heard some statistics in other fields, it's just so sobering and disillusioning. And so you address it first, and then you educate. You educate to let anyone know that's been a smoker for those number of years that's required and of that age to even ask their, you know, providers, hey, do I qualify for a CT screening? Um, we're not going to fix, you know, the disparity overnight. I think the first thing is we have to recognize it, acknowledge it, talk about it. And then until we can see those numbers get better, like diffuse anything we can to make that healthier and that and that unfortunately does require and i say it's unfortunate it requires empowering all people and all demographics especially those one those that may have that statistically not may show that there is a suboptimal delayed and and less effective treatment course in their malignancies with the education and empower them to be able to do that um but but it's been it's been a challenge and it's something that you know I myself as a minority am am learning largely in part due to social media. And we've got about two minutes left, so I want to end by asking you what solutions or proposals do you think would help close some of the equity gap in cancer care and help make treatment more equitable? Yeah, I think it's definitely like education uh, is those two things. It's talking about it, first of all, recognizing it, because you can't obviously make a solution to something unless it's spoken on. And then two is is educating. Um, and that's where I think social media is extremely effective. It basically empowers people and give them the tools that they need to be able to be more proactive as an individual uh, with their healthcare management and uh, especially as a, a demographic or subgroup that 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 is that deserves you know to have their trust earned. And you know, there's this topic of misinformation and and my buddy Austin Chang has the Association of Healthcare Social Media asked him who he was he was really ahead of that because I don't like the term like misinformers because 
I don't think or I hope like nobody inherently wants to misinform someone, right? There's some kind of like like inherent uh, altruism about the information they're putting on social media or anywhere else about, oh, these statistics aren't true or or these subsets aren't really, you know, this, that, and the other. Wagging a finger and saying like, no, you're wrong or you're putting bad information or misinformation out there is not really the strategy. The way we harmonize everything and get more collaborative is to hopefully one, believe that people inherently mean well, and then two, on social media, address, usually like say with misinformation or, or disparities, address where that statistic or that information may be true, because usually it's based on something that's partially true, but then extrapolated to become misinformation. But again, that's why I deviate from the term like misinformer. I don't think people are trying to derail the progress and the, har the harmony that we're trying to achieve in healthcare and with equity. But but it needs to be met with with acceptance and education. Like, and I really believe education is the key. It, it the world, unfortunately, in the United States, just requires us to be collaborative. It requires uh, patient em empowerment with knowledge and education and speaking until we can completely optimize it from the healthcare medical end. And it takes physicians being aware and talking about it and seeing it. And we know people are on TikTok. We know people are on Instagram. We know people that, you know, do this in their free time. But if it can just show up and put in someone's, one person's mind, hey, this is a problem and this is something we need to do, then that's a very effective way to, to make change, especially at a time when the time within a patient room and with a doctor is just getting more and more limited because of all the, you know, bureaucratic factors and everything that, that plays into healthcare that's not ultimately you know, in right of the patient. And until we can fix those things, we need to address it in any way possible. And here's a medium where we can do that if we do it responsibly. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. But Dr. Sanjay Juneja, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a terrific discussion, and I'm sure you're going to have a number of new followers after. Well, thank you so much. And I really, you know, I'm very humbled by the people that attend this and want to be a part of that change and, and, and educated. And it's what inspires me. And I appreciate the Washington Post as well for, you know, shedding light on these topics. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.